You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading today comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 31. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have revealed to us the reality of life and death and eternity. So we pray now that you, by your spirit, would help your word nestle deeply into our hearts that our, we might say in our heart, soul, strength, and mind that... Christ is our only hope in life and death. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, tonight is a lower elementary and a torch night. So if you are a lower elementary little one with a sticker or a fourth or sixth grader, 
want to head out with Torch to talk about this text. We'll see you guys later. Have a great time. While they're heading out, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's a weird Sunday, I know, but uh, it's a good Sunday once a year to gather at an odd time, to be together still, and to hopefully go out from this place and be with our friends and neighbors. Uh, we're so glad you're here. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after this service. We've been working our way through the book of Luke, or the gospel according to Luke, where we've seen right from the beginning, right off the bat in chapter one, that Luke is showing over and over and over again that things are not always what they seem. What seems upside down is actually right side up, that the elevator to glory is to first go down. Well, other than perhaps the very crucifixion of Jesus, the climax of this whole story, the, the event at which all of this is pointing toward, there's perhaps no greater, no more explicit place in all of Luke that illustrates that point of the great reversal of expectation and life, the parable often called the rich man and Lazarus that you just heard Tara read. Now, some have thought that this actually isn't a parable. If this is a parable, it's the only one where one of the characters receives a name. Just think about the Good Samaritan, uh, so many different uh, parables with Pharisees or fathers or sons, workers, the sower, all of these characters are anonymous. They're general, they're nameless characters that transcend everyday life. Also, unlike most of the other parables, there really isn't context given that then Jesus speaks into. Luke just seemingly gives it straight out of nowhere. Like if you were just listening, perhaps it comes as a startling, like no warning, Jesus is talking about divorce and then he says there's a rich man. What in the world? And unlike other places, he doesn't say, and, or the Luke or Matthew or whoever the gospel writer is doesn't say, and then he told them in a parable or something like that. On top of all that, it doesn't seemingly fit with our typical modern day understanding of heaven and hell. So in light of all that, lots of interpreters don't quite know what to do with Luke 16. The second half of chapter 16 feels disjointed, feels disorganized. Like, seriously, what in the world does verse 18, where Jesus starts talking about divorce, what does that have to do with anything? It comes out of nowhere. Well, all of this, I think, all of this second half of chapter 16 is about continuity and discontinuity. What is it that has been the same throughout all of salvation history? And what is it that has been and will be different so we're going to use that framework to ask two questions of these verses, the second half of chapter 16 tonight. In Jesus' first coming in his preaching ministry here in this first century, what is new in the present? What is new in the present both then and now for us? And then what is new in the future? That is future for them and still future for us. So first of all, we're going to try to ask and answer what is new in the present. Here's the thing, while this parable doesn't seem to have much context, it does. It does not just drop out of nowhere. It comes after the parable that we thought of last week, the parable of the so-called shrewd or dishonest manager, where in verse 12, we considered how Jesus expects his people to be faithful in that which is another's, verse 12. And then, summarizing with the charge that no human can simultaneously serve two masters, no human can serve both God and money at the same time, that we must order our loves and allegiances and pick a singular true north. After all that, then, in verse 14, 
Luke writes that the Pharisees, who loved money, ridiculed. They laughed at Jesus. They scoffed at his teaching. They're showing themselves to be the older brother of the parable of the two sons, two parables ago. They're standing on the outside with their, with their arms crossed, just sneering, standing outside of the party with just like one psh after another. I'm pretty sure that's the Greek for uh, ridicule that you have in your Bible, just psh. That's what they're doing, just shaking their heads, just sneering, scoffing, laughing, ridiculing at everything that Jesus is saying and teaching. So Jesus says to them in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, and God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You are outside of the party, but you are trying to convince yourself that you aren't, that the party is surrounding you, that you're the guest of honor. But God knows, and what he sees of you in your heart is an abomination. This is a heavy word. It is contemptible. It is utterly detestable. Your lives, your hearts, utterly detestable in God's sight. How you see yourselves as better and more worthy than others, but why? How you see others as inferior and condemnable, but why? Why? Why do you elevate yourselves above others? After all, verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. These are a couple of notoriously difficult verses to interpret. But here's what Jesus is saying. The law and the prophets, what we understand as the whole of the Old Testament, the law, not just like the Old Testament Levitical law, but the law being a shorthand word for the entire Torah or Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then the rest of the Old Testament history, uh, everything that we have in our, what we would understand as the Old Testament, what these first century Pharisees would understand as just God's word, all of that has been an authoritative effect. Until when? Well, until the arrival of John, Jesus says. John the Baptist. Now, since he's arrived, the good news or the gospel of the kingdom is preached, and then, and here's the interpretive difficulty, the phrase that we have in our English Bibles, then uh, everyone forces his way into it, into the kingdom. What is this? This phrase, forces his way, in the original language, is actually in a passive voice. So many scholars think a better interpretation is something like, uh, everyone is urged insistently with force. I don't want to try to uh, load you with some skepticism that our uh, modern-day English Bibles aren't trustworthy interpretations. They absolutely are. And so many scholars debate on what, how to actually make this uh, interpretive decision on what Jesus actually said here. But I think that might be a better translation, that everyone is urged insistently with force. Basically, everything that we've been thinking about over the past few weeks, that since John and Jesus have started their preaching ministries, there is something new going on. The law and the prophets have been fulfilled. Jesus is preaching that now, because now, because of what is new happening right now, this requires a decisive moment of action to abandon all and to order your loves when these things are in competition with him, to just absolutely understand the timing of all things and push all in. 
You're either with me or against me, Jesus has said. The pages of history are turning over reality right now. It is a new era. And yet, that's not to say that everything that was preached, the law and the prophets, was in authoritative effect until John and now until Jesus, and now let's just get rid of it all. No, verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The new era still calls for righteous living. The law had no life-giving power in and of itself. It's like a plastic can of gasoline, we've thought of it before. It needs something else, something outside of itself to ignite it. There's nothing, there's no life, nothing combustible in and of itself, inside of itself. And so the power of transformation is not in the law, but it comes by entrance into the kingdom of Jesus in order to understand the law. To understand the law, to love the law, to live the law, you must understand Jesus. You must enter his kingdom as being a subject of his kingdom by following him where he's going, ultimately his cross and resurrection. Jesus is coming. Following him means living righteously before God, even if he's the one that will actually enable that kind of living. Which then helps us understand verse 18 about divorce and remarriage. This is not a verse out of context. It does not seemingly, it seemingly doesn't make much sense from the rest of the chapter. Where from start to finish of chapter 16, from the very beginning of chapter 16 to the very end of chapter 16, it's been all about money. It's about many different parables, about elevating ourselves above others and using others for our own benefit. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus says, oh yes, also, while I'm thinking about money, here is my entire comprehensive theology about divorce and remarriage. Now, Jesus is addressing an area of obvious law-breaking. Jewish leaders all over the religious spectrum were teaching all kinds of legitimate divorces primarily by men who were setting aside their wives simply when they tired of them, just as they were setting aside the law of God when they were tired of it. So in this middle section, this is a linking, kind of a linking verse and a linking section between two parables. Jesus is saying, you think you are the sons of Abraham, but you love money and you do not love each other. The way that you treat your money shows your lack of love for God. The way that you treat your marriages shows your lack of love for one another. You do not take your vows seriously. You do not take your lives seriously before the Lord. All of this shows your lack of love for God, shows your lack of faith for God. You think you're sons of Abraham, but do you have his faith? And so what's new in the present? What is new at the coming of Christ? On the one hand, nothing. God's people are intended to love and to live the law of God as from the beginning. The only problem, though, is, based on what Jesus says elsewhere and what the rest of the New Testament says, is that no one is actually able to do this, to be this, to be this righteous law keeper, this righteous law liver. The law is a self-enclosed plastic gas jug. There is no spark. There is no life. And so... Well, on the one hand, nothing is changed. God's expectations for his people has not changed. On the other hand, everything has changed. Jesus comes offering himself as the way to love God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. That in the new covenant that Jesus is bringing, God might actually write his law on our hearts, not just on these external tablets of stone. 
that he might enable us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to understand what that actually means. So if that's what's new in the present, the ability to understand, to love, to live the law of God in the coming of Christ, well, what's new in the future? Starting with, what's new for this original audience's future? What's new here? What's coming? So again, to summarize the context, Jesus has been saying, you all have a complete misunderstanding of the law. He's been doing this for the last many chapters in confronting even the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. You daily neglect the law. You are blind men stumbling around in the dark, but you are confident that you're actually able to lead people in the light. You are convinced of yourself and you're convincing others that you actually can see, but you are blind. You are refusing to receive light and sight while still confidently leading yourselves and others to death. This is an abomination. God detests it. And there will be judgment for those who confidently lead people into the way of God when it is not the way of God. There will be a future reversal where younger brothers who have come, to, come home to the love of God will be celebrated and older brothers who have left the home of the love of God will actually be condemned. And so, let me tell you a story to drive home this point. Verse 19, seemingly out of nowhere, but not out of nowhere. You have neglected the law of God. Your lives and your hearts are an abomination. You divorce your wives, you divorce your husbands, you don't care for each other, let me drive this home. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we've got two men here. There's a rich man wearing purple and linen. He's wearing the finest clothes, purple, which came from the very rare dye of a, of a mollusk, of this shellfish creature found on the bottom of the Mediterranean. Like, seriously, no one but royalty can afford to wear purple. And he's feasting every day. Jesus likely isn't just saying that he's gluttonous, though that's probably in effect, but every day. What does that include? If he, if he is feasting sumptuously every day, he's likely causing his servants to ignore the Sabbath, to serve him. This man, this nameless rich man, is contrasted with a poor man. The nameless rich man and then this poor man who actually does get a name. This is almost, seemingly, might remind us of like the first early chapters of Exodus where the Pharaoh is nameless. We never get his name, but we've got some Hebrew midwives who are named that we might remember them. We're trying to, that Moses then in Exodus and now Jesus here is trying to show us who is really important. And this man's name is Lazarus. We find out that he needed other people to care for him. He is laid outside of, not the city gate, but out of this rich man's very personal gate. The gate of the only man in the community who likely has the resources to help this man. But don't miss that Lazarus is laid there. Others have to come and bring him there. He can't walk. He lies outside of the daily party and he hears what's going on inside. And yet he only wants the trash scraps. What's more, he's made extra unclean by the dogs. These are not his friendly pets. Dogs in these days are not viewed of as 
man's best friend. These are, think of like, I don't know, like hyenas. While there are lions uh, feasting on something, uh, the hyenas just come and swoop in and try to get a bite, and then they're out of there. These dogs are coming in and licking his open sores. Painful insult to his open sores. Now, we've mentioned that he's named, but why? Again, perhaps Jesus is highlighting the, the low man who actually is named, but Lazarus is a shortened version of two words put together, Eleazar, which means God helps. It's like a nickname of Eleazar, Lazarus. It's a common name, and it's, by the way, not meant, I think, to make a connection to Jesus' friend Lazarus in John 11, who will be raised from the dead. This is just a fictional character. But literally, if we were to read this, if we were to lead, read this in like the Hebrew or something, if we were seeing this name in the Hebrew, we might read, and, his, and at his gate, the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named God Helps. And God Helps was covered with sores. And God Helps desired to be fed. And dogs came and licked God's help. God Helps open sores. If there is anyone who it seems that God is not helping, it's this guy. In fact, if there's anyone who seems to be blessed by God, it's the rich man. And if cursed by God, it's God helps. It's Lazarus. But then abruptly, Jesus moves on. Their lives were actually not the point of this story. Abruptly, both men die. Lazarus, who incidentally never speaks in this entire story. Have you ever noticed that when you read this this week or if you've ever read it before? Lazarus never opens his mouth. He doesn't ever speak in this story. Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's side. He receives the absolute like VIP transport. He gets the full limo to hang out with Abraham, the father of all of Israel. And the picture that we get there is that of a banquet. Remember from a few weeks ago when Jesus was telling people, hey, don't show up early to a banquet and take the position of honor, the position at the right hand of this like U-shaped table right at the right hand of the banquet host. Don't show up early and take that place of honor at the right hand seat of the host only for someone to then, who is more important than you, show up and the host like sends you further and further down. Don't do that. This is what's happening. Lazarus is at the place of honor, the right hand of who? Abraham, just like John at the Last Supper, which is why some older translations might call this not Abraham's side like most of our English translations have, but Abraham's bosom. He is one close enough to actually like lean over and recline on Abraham's side, his bosom. He's right up in there. So we hear of a feast where someone is going to be at Abraham's side, and who, I, who might we expect? to be at the right hand of Abraham, at the place of honor, next to the father of all of Israel, the father of faith. Moses, maybe Elijah, David. Yeah, maybe they all did sit there for a time, but Moses and Elijah and David, they get moved down, further down, to be replaced by the real guest of honor who? God helps. Lazarus, the man who cannot walk, the man who is starving, the man with open sores. What in the world? Why? We'll come back to him. At the end of verse 22, Jesus goes on. The rich man also died, and he was buried. 
That's all we get. He, he, he doesn't get a VIP limo. He's just buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Where now, presumably, he sees Lazarus feasting sumptuously. Lazarus was just hearing and hoping to be filled as the rich man feasted sumptuously every day. But now, Lazarus at Abraham's side has been elevated himself feasting sumptuously. Now I realize that I'm about to open a can of worms that we possibly don't, ha- we don't possibly have time to dig to the bottom of, but hold on, before we keep going on to the pit, where are they? What's happening? Like, is this purgatory or something? Well, we know this can't be purgatory because Abraham is there, right? If the father of faith is still in this place of like having sins purged away or something, not to mention that purgatory doesn't really become a thing in people's thinking until like a thousand years after Jesus. This is not an early church doctrine or understanding. So, if it's not purgatory, can people in hell see into the realities of heaven? Is this just a story? Is Jesus not trying to teach us anything about like the real like systematic theology categories of heaven and hell and the afterlife or something? He just wants to tell us a story that we might take some, some values from or some principles from. Well, a few years ago on Good Friday and then the following Easter, we thought about how we in the Apostles' Creed, we affirm just as we did a few minutes ago, we affirm in the translation that we use, and he ascended or he descended to the dead. That is, Jesus descended to the dead. In many English interpretations, you may have often, or also, if you've ever read the Apostles' Creed by yourself or out loud, you might have read, and he descended into hell. But in its, in its original fourth century Latin, the time that the Apostles' Creed is written, it's clear that the better word there is just the place of the dead, not necessarily hell and all of that kind of uh, theological and uh, imaginative understandings that might go with that word in our English usage. So what does the place of the dead mean, especially in its Old Testament context? When someone died in Old Testament times, they were said to descend to Sheol. Sheol, Sheol, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, Kyle actually read that word earlier from Psalm 139. When I go down to Sheol, you are there. When I go to heaven, you are there. Or this word's Greek interpretation, Hades, that Jesus uses here. This indicated by the person's body being literally buried underground, the place of the dead, under the ground, but the soul, now separate from the body, descended to an actual place of the dead, not just buried under the ground. So while we don't have time this evening to go through the entire Old Testament survey of every time the word Sheol gets used or when someone goes to the place of the dead, people who were in covenant relationship with Yahweh, the God of Abraham, then we might say remained in like a righteous compartment of Sheol. And these people, while they were there in Sheol, they were awaiting a future resurrection. So we see the spirit of Samuel return to King Saul. Remember this, when Saul goes to visit the witch of Endor to conjure conjure Samuel from the dead, and he comes from Sheol in 1 Samuel 28. Psalm 16, David proclaims in faith that God will not abandon my soul to Sheol. God will not leave me 
there for eternity, just to wait and to wait and to wait for nothing. God will not abandon me. He will come for me. So I'm convinced that, again, these are just two examples of hundreds throughout the Old Testament, that this is the place that Jesus has in mind here in Luke 16, that those who by faith, through the covenant of Abraham, who now await a Savior, who will not abandon them there, who will not leave them there, but who will come for them. But this stands in contrast with another compartment of Sheol, another place where Sheol gets referred to, for the unrighteous, the place where the unrighteous go. And that place is reserved for judgment. The place like the rich man in Luke 16 and like many others, especially in the Psalms, over and over and over again, where David is confident that they will go to a place of judgment, even if not in this life, there will be judgment in the next, in the place of the dead. But there is a third place of spiritual presence, which is where God is. All of the throne room experiences throughout the Old Testament, especially with Isaiah or Ezekiel or the beginning chapters of Job, this place is referred to as paradise or as heaven, as Kyle read in Psalm 139. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I'm in Sheol, you are there. You do not abandon. You are, you are everywhere from the highest to the lowest. It is likely, this place of heaven is likely the place where Enoch or Elijah, who never physically died, maybe even Jeremiah or Moses were taken to. They bypassed Sheol altogether. So this third better and best option, we might say, might be exactly what Paul has in mind when he describes being taken up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. There's this place of unrighteous Sheol, a place of righteous Sheol, but this is a place of waiting for final and ultimate consummated uh, judgment and or salvation, but then a third place of paradise or of heaven. Now, we'll come back to this in a minute, and I know that there are just like worms pouring out of all of your cans now, right? Uh, But let's see if we can refocus on the parable for just a minute. It is from unrighteous Sheol that the, the rich man, now receiving judgment, calls out to Abraham. And who does he call out to? To Abraham, not to Lazarus. Like, speaking to Lazarus which he never does, even though Lazarus is the guest of honor, speaking to that guy, that's still beneath him. He needs to speak to Abraham as one very important person to, the, to another. And he says to Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Oh, so he does know Lazarus's name. He knew him all of those years, and yet he ignored him. Only he still ignores him, and he just goes about ordering around, ordering him around as if Lazarus is still his servant. He's basically saying, hey, all right, now that Lazarus is up on his feet, and good for him, right? I mean, he couldn't walk all those years, but now that he's up on his feet, I'd like him now that he's able to do a few things for me. Because unlike him, well, I'm not used to all this discomfort, so please send him to comfort me. Now, before we get to Abraham's response, What's going on with this reversal? Is Jesus teaching that if you are rich in this life, you will go to a place of torment? No. We see Nicodemus. We see Zacchaeus. We see Joseph of Arimathea, all in the Gospels alone, not to mention Abraham himself, who was extraordinarily wealthy. These are people who are commended and elevated, even though they are wealthy in this life. 
And we know that so many in Israel's history were poor, but they did not trust in God. They were not elevated. The hungry and the homeless wilderness generation that came out of Egypt, were they elevated because they were simply poor, hungry, and homeless? No. They were condemned for their grumbling, for their hating of God, for not providing exactly what they wanted, exactly when they wanted it. But as we've considered, and as we'll see in a few weeks, there is a reason why, is it, why it is harder for the rich to go through the eye of a needle. The godly poor recognize their need and they depend on God. They trust in his promises of his presence, which was undoubtedly the case for this fictional but godly poor man, Lazarus. The rich see no recognizable need in their life, and so they convince themselves, we convince ourselves that we have, because we have no physical needs, that we also have no spiritual needs. And in fact, because I can provide for myself, all of this that I have provided for myself, thank you very much, is a result of how awesome I am, or how hard I work, or how intelligent I am, or whatever, which is all pride. It is self-worship. It is not humility. There is no right perspective before God. And so back to the parable, Abraham says to the rich man, child, verse 25, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. He's saying, even if I wanted Lazarus to go, even if Lazarus, just out of kindness and compassion, wanted to do what you're asking of him, he cannot. Because you got good things then for a lifetime. But you did not thank God for them. You did not use those things well. You did not steward them for God and for others. And so now you will suffer for eternity. Lazarus, on the other hand, suffered then for a time. But he trusted in the goodness of God. He depended on the goodness of God. He trusted in his character. He trusted in his promises. He believed the law was good, and he sought to follow it. He trusted in what Abraham had brought to him, a covenant that is given to him by God that he might be credited righteousness through his faith, through his belief in God. And now, because of all that, well, he gets good things for eternity. He didn't get good things for a time, but he now gets good things for eternity. What's done is done. There is judgment or reward for how you have approached your life and how you have approached your understanding of your place in your life. To which the rich man says, verse 27, okay, bummer, but then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, this seems noble, right? What's done is done for him, but maybe he can persuade others to not pursue a destiny as he is experiencing. This seems noble, but he only cares for those who are like him, for those in his familial or his social station. If Lazarus can't be my table waiter, Surely he can be my errand boy to serve the interest of his superiors, my brothers, who are like me. The problem, of course, in calling these five guys his brothers is that he calls Abraham father. And if Abraham is his father, then who are his brothers? Much more than the guys who share his house and his father, his biological father. 
There's a whole lot more than just these five guys. There is a nation surrounding him of his brothers, including who? Lazarus. But Abraham doesn't correct that. He corrects him for thinking that these five guys would listen to Lazarus in the first place. Abraham says in verse 29, hey, look, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them, Moses and the prophets. Listen, man, like they have the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were until John. They've got all they need, which is exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 16, when Jesus said, you've had all that you've needed to understand life and eternity. And even better, you've got me now to make it all come alive. But verse 30, the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If they see a ghost, they'll repent. Trust me, I've read the Christmas carol, right? It seems reasonable. Like, I think that we all think that likely if we saw something like the Christmas carol in our life, or if we saw some person that we had experienced in some earlier part of our life come to us as a ghost, we would all take the rest of our lives way more seriously. We would make serious changes. We would repent in our life. We would make an about face in our life that would last for the rest of our days. We would listen. This moment of clarity would be impossible to ignore. This moment of clarity would be impossible to wear off. Maybe 30, 40 years later, you'd remember that moment of clarity from the ghost, and oh yeah, it's a new day. I gotta take this seriously again. But Abraham is saying, the law, that is Moses, the prophets, God's word is not enough for them now because, well, it's not enough. It wasn't enough for you, right? It is enough. But I'm telling you, man, nothing magical. There's not something magical that's going to happen by some ghost thing going on. If you're not understanding God's spiritual magical word to them on the external, but he's saying, The rich man is saying, no, it wasn't enough. It won't be enough for them because it wasn't enough for me. I didn't take, I didn't understand God's word. I didn't understand the law and the prophets, so it won't be enough for them. But Abraham says again, no, no, no. They won't even listen to Lazarus from the dead. They won't do that because you didn't listen. Just like the, just think about it. If Abraham is saying, no ghost, no resurrected person is going to change someone's life. Because think about all the times we've seen this in the scriptures. Just like the chief priests and Pharisees who didn't believe after the other Lazarus was raised in the Gospel of John. Israel not believing despite miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Like those things wore off in their hearts and in their worship. There's nothing magical outside of you that's going to change within. We would do the exact same thing. If you had this Christmas carol moment in your life, we'd do the exact same thing. Maybe we'd be startled awake by some spiritual reality, only then to be lulled back to sleep by that which is immediately in front of us. We'd justify or explain that away as not real or untrustworthy or some trick of the devil or of my subconscious or whatever. 
What Abraham tells the rich man is that his brothers don't need something externally magical to come to them in visions. They need something internally spiritual to happen from within. They need the light and life of God. They don't need someone to just throw some matches at the plastic jugs of their heart. It's not going to do anything. you got to have something internal to happen. Something's got to get inside there. And so verse 31, he said to them, if, said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they be convinced if someone should even rise from the dead. No ghost is going to do anything. It's not Moses and the prophets that's at fault here. It's not Moses and the prophets' fault that your brothers are not listening. You must hear what God's word is actually about. You must hear and understand that God is creator and king of this world. That you, a creature, you must understand your right place within his world. That God's word is about us recognizing our sinful rebellion against God and ruining his kingdom daily by how we use others, by how we hate what God loves. That God's word is about repenting, about turning, about, about facing in this rebellion and hatred of others, about understanding now in Jesus, being enabled to understand all this, to love all this, to live all this. This is what the law and the prophets have always been about, to love God and to love others, to have passion, daily deepening passion for God and daily deepening compassion for people. Passion for God, compassion for people. Jesus' message then, though scoffed, though laughed at, though ridiculed, is perfectly in line with Abraham and Moses. It's just following straight in line. And the entirety of those who rightly trusted God, who understood, who looked forward to a day of future fulfillment in these Old Testament times, when a Messiah would come, when he would live for them and die for them, when he would bring the forgiveness of sins for all eternity, not just on a sacrifice-by-sacrifice sacrifice basis, one credit card swipe of deferring debt and deferring debt and deferring debt, but paying it. And so the irony is, is that Lazarus actually does come and preach to the rich man's brothers, does he not? He doesn't come resurrected from the dead, but in this telling of this parable, he's preaching. In the telling of this parable, he warns of the life to come, and he preaches to these sons of Abraham, these brothers of the rich man, insisting with force to enter the kingdom. It's coming. Judgment comes. This decisive moment of coming to Jesus and being part of him is now. And who, and what happens? These brothers of the rich man, they're standing right here listening to Lazarus' preaching, ridiculing this kind of preaching, ridiculing the teaching of Jesus and proving Abraham's point. They will not listen. The law and the prophets are not enough in them. They've got to have something inside. You must enter the kingdom. You must come to Christ. Humble yourself before him and have him bring life. We thought about in chapter 9 at the transfiguration of Jesus that while we look forward to one day in the future when there will be an age of the eye where we will finally behold Jesus with our eyes, see him as he is and become like him, that day is not now. It is not an age of the eye. We do not see Jesus as 
Kyle dismissed us last year or last week in the benediction. Though we do not see him, we love him. Today, though not an age of the eye, is an age of the ear, of hearing God's word to us, of responding to God's word, of hearing the law and the prophets, and turning, of turning from sin, of hearing that God will indeed elevate the humble who trust him and bring down the proud who trust themselves. That there really is a life to come. That there really is judgment for the life that is. As Hebrews 9 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. One life, one judgment. It is really real, and we must hear God's word. Turn from our lives of mere self-promotion. Agree with God that he has made me for something beyond whatever I want whenever I want it. Even if that means using the resources that God has given me to care for my brothers and sisters. To care for those outside of my, perhaps just the four walls of my own house. My very small nuclear family, but the family of God. To drill down into God's word in the life of his church so that I might actually know what it is that God wants of my life. What it means to love him. What it means to love others. Because here's the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. For people in the past, like Abraham, like Moses, like David, like Lazarus, well, in his descent to the dead, the place of the dead, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that Jesus had descended into the lower regions of the earth. This is weird. This is clearly not just that his body had been buried in a tomb, in a hole in the ground. But what happened? What happened when Jesus descended into the lower regions of the earth? Paul tells us that when he ascended again, he led out a whole host of captives. That's weird. But in 1 Peter 3.19, Peter tells us that between his death and resurrection, Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison in his death. Weird. In his descent, Jesus proclaims that he is Lord all, over all of those who, Philippians 2.10, who are under the earth, just as he will proclaim to those on earth in his resurrection and then in heaven in his future ascent. This is not some like post-mortem, after-death second and last chance sharing of the gospel to all who have died. But on what we might call Holy Saturday, the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I think what the New Testament writers who are steeped in the worldview of the Old Testament realities, what they're teaching us is that Jesus on Saturday led a war raid to liberate the captives. Those who by faith had waited for the Messiah to come, who would not abandon them to Hades, to Sheol, the place of the dead. And so many years later, the Apostle John would see the Lord Jesus and write of his experience in Revelation 1. And John says that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He's unlocked the doors. He holds the keys of death, of Hades, of Sheol, the place of the dead, and no longer will the church that Jesus builds, the place of his body who belong to him and are now the dwelling place of God, no longer will the gates of Hades, of Sheol, hold God's people in any longer. It's not a place of hopeless waiting. 
The gates of Sheol, of, of death, of Hades, or as some of our Bibles might say in Matthew 18, the gates of hell will not prevail against them, will not hold them in, will not separate them from the very love of God. Death cannot separate God's people from the love of God any longer. He transforms the place of the dead now as the place of his presence, the place where Jesus is king and those who by the covenant of his blood now live in his presence forever so that on this side of the cross, to you, this side of the cross, after Jesus has died, buried, descended to the dead, and now ascended, leading a whole host of, cop- of captives in his wake, the place now that he leads them to is the place where Jesus is king, where he ascends to heaven, so that those by his covenant of his blood now live forever in his presence. So that on this side of the cross in his resurrection, Paul can say, unlike Abraham could, or unlike David could, or unlike Lazarus could, who were just waiting and waiting and waiting for redemption, for rescue. In Philippians 1, Paul can say, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Is not, death is not gain here. You go to a place of waiting and waiting and waiting. But Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ in his presence, for that is far better, a place of heaven. His death means to, Paul's death means to now spiritually live in paradise with Jesus in the very throne room of God, a reality which Abraham or David or Lazarus in this parable could have only dreamed. It's new. It's glorious. Jesus has flung wide the gates of Sheol, of Hades, of death, that his people might dwell with him. Even though, as they, as we, look forward to an even future reality of the full and final resurrection from the dead, the consummation of all things, where now both body and spirit reunited, now knowing and loving God fully and finally with no more sin, no more selfishness, no more death, pain or loss, no more worry or anxiety, no more injustice or oppression or lack, no more material poverty or material wealth, only the riches of God that he gives in the inheritance of himself to his children. So for those of you who find yourself in times of plenty today, be aware how your things, your possessions, your paychecks, your stuff, can plug your ears, can deaden your heart. Be aware of how your things can deaden your heart to the needs of those around you. Hear his word about face. Repent. Seek to align your life with the holiness of God and the new life that Christ offers in his forgiveness of your sins through his death and the eternal life that he offers to you in his resurrection. Be aware how your things can sleeping potion lull you to sleep for eternity and then judgment. But for those of us in times of loss, and there are some of you in this room today in times of loss, in times of struggle, in times of lack, for those now feeling a bit more like Lazarus than the rich man, Jesus wins. He has won. He holds the keys to death and Hades. He will make all things good and right. The right man, Christchurch, the right man, I assure you, is at the helm of the cosmos. You can bank your life on it. 
You can bank your eternity on it. Hear his word and trust his promises. What is our only hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to him. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. He is not dead. He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord, then sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Oh, sing hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are over all, that death, that rebellion, that treason, This is not just hanging in the balance. This is not just some black or white issue, yin or yang, good or evil, what will triumph in the end, we don't know. No, God, you are holy. You are righteous. You have created all life. You are king. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to us in your life, that we identified can identify with you that you have descended to the place of our death, but now death has no ultimate sting, has no ultimate victory, that those who have come to you in their lives and trusting trusting in your victory and your promises to us, that you invite your people into the place of your presence, that you, Lord Jesus, invite us to the place of your eternal presence in our ultimate and final resurrection from the dead. God, this is the future to which we hope, the future that we await, and we long for your coming. God, help us with the reality, the certainty of eternity, the reality, the certainty of judgment. Come in humility to you. Might eternity bring meaning even more to the present today. And we humble ourselves before you. Lord, have mercy on us, a sinner. Might we pray these things and mean them that you might elevate your people in our humility and in our trusting of your promises, that you might elevate us, your people, to the place of your feasting forever. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Our King, our Victor, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.